I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to the third of this year's London Review of Books uh, winter lecture series and to the lecture this evening by Andrew Hagen. The LRB lectures at the museum are a great opportunity for us to hear distinguished critics thinking about the issues that the museum tries to address in different ways through its collections, through its exhibitions. And one of the great benefits of it is to remind us all that when the museum was created in the 1750s, it was, of course, a library as well as a museum, and the distinction between the two was not so clear. And indeed, between the founding of the museum by Parliament in 1753 and the opening in 1759 uh, was, of course, the great moment of the publication of Johnson's Dictionary, uh, another attempt to gather a world of experience into one place. And, of course, as you all know, uh, Johnson wouldn't have been anything without Boswell. Uh, And if there's one person today who I think one could compare to Boswell in London, it would be this evening's speaker. The point of the museum at that stage was a very radical one, to find a place where the public could consider objects and texts that would allow them to think in a different way and to challenge the established orthodoxies. It was a place where dangerous texts were studied and published. And that is, of course, one of the themes of this evening's lecture about dangerous texts, and is also, of course, one of the purposes of the museum still to allow the study of the things to challenge and to subvert the agreed orthodoxies. We're particularly grateful to Joanna Biggs at the London Review of Books for her work on this, um, and, of course, to Mary Kay Wilmers, the editor, who has really been the instigator of the whole series. But I want to come back to Johnson and Boswell. Boswell was but one of the many, many Scots who flocked to London in the middle of the 18th century, producing such irritation uh, later in the century that uh, by the 1780s and 90s, you could find this wonderful satirical print by Newton about the shower of Scots. The signpost in the bottom right says that this is, of course, the best road the Scots are ever going to see. And the more closely you look at them, uh, the more unappealing they become. (laughs) And this has continued, of course, as we know, from then till now. And among the latest shower to arrive in London is, of course, our distinguished speaker this evening. Uh, And I'm now going to ask Nicky Spice to introduce him. Nicky, thank you very much. Thank you, Neil. It's been another terrific year, I think, for the winter lectures, and 
your commitment to them is, as always, hugely appreciated. We know how busy you are as director of the museum, and we know how busy Joanna Mackle is as deputy director. And it means a lot to us that you make time to give these lectures your such enthusiastic support. This evening, Andrew Hagen will be speaking about Julian Assange, a subject about which he knows more than pretty much anybody else. But with Andrew, it's not really a question of how much he knows, not a question of quantity, but a question of quality, about the quality of what he does with what he knows. He's a very rare beast, Andrew, an investigative reporter who is also a leading novelist, a novelist who is also an essayist. Indeed, the New York Times has called him the best essayist of his generation. I was talking the other day to James Meek, and he was saying ruefully that he thought the tax man should allow him to offset all his life's expenses against tax, since as a novelist he was always working. For those of us who are not novelists, this is an arresting thought. The idea that the novelist's mind is always on duty, always alert, always processing material, like a whale metabolising plankton. In Andy's case, this special novelist quality of attention is immediately apparent in his best non-fiction writing. He has a quite extraordinary capacity to observe detail and to remember verbatim whole stretches of dialogue, complete with inflection, accent and verbal quirk. He has a capacity to be both watchfully outside his subject while being also fully humanly present to it, capable of a sympathy that is genuine and warm and which, of course, opens his subject up. When this novelist's sensibility and technique is at the service of a passionate journalistic interest in the world, such as only the best investigative reporters possess, we get Andrew O'Hagan's greatest essays. One of the things I love about Andy's writing is its distinctive lightness, an energy that lifts one up and carries one along. It's partly, of course, the play of gaiety and humour in his work. He has an inexhaustible sense of the way human beings and situations are funny. But I also like to relate it, relate this lightness in his writing to the fact that he is a wonderful dancer, by repute, I say. I am sure he won't mind me revealing, if you don't already know, that as a young person he won a scholarship to the Royal College of Ballet, the Royal Ballet School in Glasgow, a scholarship he didn't take up. I didn't know this when Andy became an assistant editor at the London Review of Books in 1991. But not long after he started work with us, I began to notice the way he moved around the office. And I remember saying to him, Andy, you should have been a dancer. And he just smiled and said nothing. There are writers with a painter's eye, there are writers with a musician's ear, but how many talented writers have there been who were dancers? Perhaps it's no more than a metaphor, but I really do think that Andy's prose moves beautifully. He writes with passion and grace, perhaps what the Spanish call duende when they're speaking about the greatest flamenco dancers. If you read Andy's work, you will find this everywhere in it, and I'm sure you will hear it again in his lecture this evening. Introducing a lecture by Andy is a particular pleasure because he is a true colleague and friend. As well as being a novelist, an essayist, and a journalist since 2001, he has been a so-called goodwill ambassador for UNICEF, 
travelling all over the world on behalf of that organisation. But since 1991, he has been a goodwill ambassador for the London Review of Books. First as an assistant editor, then as a contributor, he's written around 100 pieces for the LRB over the last 23 years, and as a contributing editor and member of the board of directors of the company. In these roles, Andy has worked tirelessly for the LRB for two-thirds of its existence and for most of his professional career. It is impossible to thank you enough, Andy, but it is great to have a chance publicly to acknowledge our debt to you. We are delighted that Andy has agreed to talk to us tonight about his work with Julian Assange, and we are on tenterhooks to hear his rare genius as novelist, essayist and reporter at work on this gripping subject. Thank you. In this building, we come into contact with many objects that once had a secret or covert function. But now we see their beauty and their significance as if each was made almost by time itself to promote the interesting story of humanity. We may sometimes forget the human being behind the gold ingot. We might never consider the man who carved the sarcophagus or the woman who painted the Japanese theatre mask. At a deep level, the museum both celebrates and hides the relationship between anonymity and personality. But this lecture, set in the early part of the 21st century, will plume on that relationship, knowing that one day the WikiLeaks servers in Sweden may sit, up, sit upstairs as cold and personless as the tomb of Pyarva. In John Banville's novel, The Untouchable, the protagonist, Victor Maskell, whose adulthood is based on that of the art historian and spy, Anthony Blunt, sees how we sometimes make monuments of ourselves that the museums would struggle to house. Diderot said that what we do is we erect a statue in our own image inside ourselves, idealised, you know, but still recognisable, and then spend our lives engaged in the effort to make ourselves into its likeness. On the 5th of January 2011, I was asked if I'd be interested in helping Julian Assange write his memoirs. In the lives of many published writers, requests will occasionally come of that sort. I've long made a private study of ghostwriting and its problems, how much did Alex Haley protect Malcolm X when he ghosted his autobiography? To what extent did Ted Sorensen impersonate the verbal manner of John F. Kennedy when he wrote Profiles in Courage, a book for which the future president won the Pulitzer Prize? And are the science fiction stories H.P. Lovecraft ghosted for Harry Houdini not the best things he ever wrote? There would be a touch of all this in the strange case of Assange. But there was something else in my interest, a sense that the world might be more ghosted now than at any time in its history. When I first arrived at Ellingham Hall, he was fast asleep. He'd been living there at the house of Vaughan Smith, one of his sureties, since his arrest on Swedish rape allegations. He was under house arrest, wearing an electronic tag on his leg. 
He reported to Beckles Police Station every afternoon to sign in. Assange and co. kept hackers hours, up all night, asleep by day. I'm sorry I'm late, he said, padding into the room in socks and a suit. He was amused and suspicious at the same time. A nice combination, I thought. He showed a few signs of the mad... He showed few signs of the mad unprofessionalism to come. The thing worrying him was how quickly the book would have to be written. He said he might be in jail soon, and that might not be bad for the book. I have quite abstract thoughts, he said, and an argument about civilization and secrecy that needs to be got down. Hitler wrote Mein Kampf in prison. I asked him if he had a working title for the book yet, and he said to laughter, yes, ban this book from Swedish whores to Pentagon bores. He spoke at length about his enemies, mainly The Guardian and The New York Times, whom he had fallen out with over the Bradley Manning material. He had a strange on-the-spectrum inability to see when he was becoming boring or demanding. He talked as if the world needed him to talk and never to stop. Odd for a dissident, he had no questions. I have, I'd say, a 40% chance of being freed, he said. If they free me on 6 February, I'll leave the country immediately because there would be a second arrest and the US will be determined to have me extradited. I would sooner be in a country where no extradition treaty exists with the US, such as Cuba or Switzerland. A lot of people in America want me dead. There was an article in the Washington Press which showed my face with a target on it and blood coming out the back of my head. On the drive to Beckles, he phoned ahead to the police station to tell them he was coming. He had two phones in his lap and answered neither one himself. A French journalist was following the car and got lost behind us. At the police station, Julian's assistant and girlfriend, Sarah, stopped the car and said, Shall I do the honours? I watched as she went and searched the bushes. Is she checking for paparazzi? I said. I wish, said Julian. What then? Assassins. <laughs> I said I would write the book on the condition that I could do it for the interest alone, the thrill of getting the story right and learning something in the process. I thought I would have a kind of authorly freedom by not being the named author. I told Jamie Bing, the publisher, I didn't want my name anywhere on the book and that I wouldn't give interviews or talk about the project. I wouldn't become a WikiLeaks spokesperson or go on Newsnight. I wanted to let the work speak for itself. I was assured this would work, and Julian agreed. I drove to Norfolk. It was dark by the time I got there, there was a creepy, drizzly sense of winter in the country lanes around Ellingham Hall. I stopped the car and I got changed in a lane, putting a hoodie over a T-shirt, white rabbits hopping in the headlamps. I've been told that journalists were everywhere, and indeed there were lights around the fields and sometimes helicopters overhead. When we began speaking about the book, I was concerned to get a sense of what the elements were so that I could then take these pieces like mosaic and think about how to build the picture. I said it might mean having a narrative in which the past and present alternated. What do you think of Anna Karenina? Julian said. Loved it. 
I said. I just thought it took too much of my life away, he said. But then there's this scene where the dog begins to speak, and I thought, yes, this is beginning to make sense. I said the biggest surprise for readers of his book would be to discover it was written without defensiveness, without luridness. Maybe it should be frank and gracious. Maybe it should be experimental, he said. Like chapter one has one word, chapter two has two words. That's surface invention, I said. The book might summon the relationship between the individual and the state as it seems from your position now. But I'm not a complete person yet, he said. He wanted his book to be like Thomas Paine's Right of Man, Rights of Man. I noticed he tends to eat pretty much with his hands. He had three helpings of lasagna that night, and he ate both the baked potato and the jam pudding with his hands. He turned from being very open and engaged to being removed and sort of disgusted. About midnight, he and Sarah, whilst continuing to talk, lifted over their MacBooks. Bloody hell, exclaimed Sarah. What? said Julian. The Guardian have redacted the following from a cable about Tunisia, she said. Read what they've redacted, Julian said. She read two sentences about the deposed Tunisian president having sought treatment for his cancer abroad. They've taken them out, she said. Julian made a face. They're disgusting. Why do it? said Sarah. Julian said they were obviously worried about being sued. At 10pm the next night, I drove over to the house and Julian spoke for nearly three hours without pause. At one point, he looked quite moved as he spoke about backstabbers. He talked about Domscheit Berg, his former WikiLeaks colleague who had broken with him and written a book. In some way, he found it impossible to imagine how another person could have a view of him or of themselves that didn't accord with his own. Every good story needs a Judas, he said, and nearly everybody is a fucking wanker. On Wednesday, the 19th of January, it rained all day. I was beginning to wonder about the time-wasting. I couldn't understand the slow and lazy way they were going about things. They always talked about the pressure of work, about how busy they were, but compared to most journalists, they sat in their asses half the day. Julian's favourite activity was following what people, especially his enemies, were saying about him on the internet. When I told him I'd sooner cut my balls off than Google myself, he found a high-minded reason explaining why he had to know what other people were saying about him. Both Kristen and Julian made reference to a letter they had come, that had come from The Guardian's editor, Alan Rusbridger. It was the first time I noticed how deeply adversarial WikiLeaks was in its relationship with its friends. Julian treated his supporters as subjects and learned nothing when they walked away. He hardly mentioned the right-wing press that called him a criminal and a traitor. He expended all his ire on the journalists who had tried to work with him and who had basic sympathy for his political position. In a bank safe, I have dozens of hours of taped interviews with Assange where he rails maniacally against The Guardian and Bill Keller of The New York Times. After many of these long nights, I would wonder if the job wasn't getting closer to fiction than I'd ever suspected. Before my eyes, and with no regard for me or, indeed, the tape recorder, he snapped the olive branch proffered by people he hated. Did you miss me? 
Asked Julian when I returned from duties in London. He was eating two chocolate bars. Sarah was clicking on her laptop. That's quite good, she said. I've got you £20,000 for doing an hour's interview by Skype. It was for some group of company presidents. That's not much, Julian said. Ingratitude? Well, Julian said, if Tony Blair, who's a war criminal, can get £120,000, I should get at least £1 more than him. That night, I spoke to Jamie Bing, the publisher. I told him the work WikiLeaks is trying to do might be bigger than Julian's ability to articulate it. There was this incredible need for spy talk. Julian would often refer to the places he lived in as safe houses, and he'd often say, when you go to Queensland, there's a contact there you should speak to. You mean a friend, I'd say. No, it's more complicated than that. He appeared to like the notion that he was pursued, and the tendency was only complicated by the fact that he was, pers- he was pursued by some. But the pursuit was never as grave as he wanted it to be, and the slightly outmoded Cold War tropes, where one didn't deliver a package, one made a drop-off, became a bit tiresome. One day we were due to meet with some of the WikiLeaks staff at a farmhouse out towards Lowestoft. We went in my car. Julian was especially edgy that afternoon, feeling perhaps that the walls were closing in. And we bumped down one of those flat roads covered in tractors, tyre muck. Quick, quick, he said, go left. We're being followed. I looked in the rearview mirror and could see a white Mondeo with a wire sticking out the back. Don't be daft, Julian, I said. That's a taxi. No, no, listen to me. It's surveillance. We're being followed. Quickly, go left. Just by comical chance, as I was rocking a Sweeney-style left handbrake turn, the car behind us suddenly stopped at a farmhouse gate and a little boy jumped out and ran up the path. (laughs) I looked at the clock and we rolled off in a cloud of dust. The clock said 3.48. That was a kid being delivered home from school. I said, you're mental. You don't understand, he said. There was a lot of laughter in Ellingham Hall, followed by long periods of boredom. The laughter had a lot to do with Sarah Harrison, who had a nice way of teasing Julian, and a lot to do with the man himself, who responds well to jokes. On a good day, it was quite inspiring to see them go after some lying politician or some corrupt tin-pot government. It was a new thing in history, that this could all happen from a small kitchen table somewhere in Norfolk. But those days became less frequent, and we saw that Julian was nearly always engaged in foul little contretemps. Eventually, I found a house to rent in Bungie, ten minutes away. The delaying tactics on Julian's part had become insane. When I tried to talk to him about dates, he talked about his forthcoming trial hearing and then told me Fidel Castro had sent him a message to say WikiLeaks was the only website he liked. (laughs) During the time of the Egyptian uprising, Mubarak tried to halt the revolution by closing down the mobile phone network, a service that came through Canada. Julian and his gang hacked into Nortel and fought against Mubarak's official hackers to reverse the process. Julian won and got the phones in the hands of the revolutionaries to work. The revolution continued, and Julian was satisfied. We all were, sitting next to the aga, eating chocolates. 
That is why I didn't walk out. The story was just too large to walk out on, too significant. What Julian lacked in efficiency or professionalism, he made up for in courage. What he lacked in carefulness, he made up for in impact. But he was also losing touch with all those promises he'd made and contracts he'd signed. His paranoia was losing him support, and in a normal organisation, one where other people's experience was respected and where their value was judged on more than loyalty, he would have been fired. I would have fired him myself if I hadn't been there merely to help him straighten his sentences. But the sentences were infected with all his habits of self-regard and truth manipulation. The man who put himself in charge of disclosing the world's secrets simply couldn't bear his own. Is this a good use of our time? I said it again and again, and it had no force. But it can't be a priority, Julian said. Ending wars and starting a revolution in Libya is the priority. Julian came up to London for an appeal hearing on Sunday the 6th of February, 2011. At midnight, I went over to the house he was staying at in Southwark Mews in Paddington. I went up to a small bedroom at the top of the house and found Julian lying on an unmade bed. He was cutting his nails. Do you know why I'm doing this, cutting my nails? He said. Nope. So the court doesn't look at my nails and think they're the nails of someone who rips condoms. One of the Swedish women had alleged that he'd ripped off a condom during sex. Like everyone else, the Swedish women were merely figures passing on the other side of the glass. A French guy called Jeremy came in with a sack of encrypted phones Julian always seemed to have three phones on the go at any one time, sometimes two, always a red one, his personal one. And this latest batch was designed to deal with a general paranoia that the newspapers were hacking all of us. The whole time I walked alongside them, sudden bursts of vigilance would vie with a complete negligence. Julian would speak on open lines sometimes. The others kept the same mobiles for months, and none of them seemed to care about a running tape recorder. Granted, I was there to ask questions and record replies, but still, much of what they said had nothing to do with the book, and they simply forgot about it. Only once was asked to sign a confidentiality agreement. I refused. And when Julian gave me a hard drive containing very sensitive material, he forgot I had it and never asked for it back. In a moment of helpfulness, he asked his mother to send us a load of photographs from his childhood. He gave me the disc and completely forgot about that too. He stood at the centre of a little amateur empire and any professional incursions from lawyers, filmmakers, from publishers, all of which he had encouraged, were treated as flies to wanton boys. His pride could engulf the room in flames. And if you asked him why he had no experienced people, nobody in middle age or even elderly working alongside him, authoritative people with form who might contradict him on a daily basis, he would argue that those people had already been corrupted. I was often the only person over 35 anywhere near him. He didn't see the cult leader aspect. While I'd been interviewing Julian in stolen hours in the middle of the night, in the backs of cars and in meetings at my house in Bungie, my researcher Harry was gathering childhood material faster than Julian could speak it. But we knew we were up against it three months after the contract was signed. 
Canongate was keen to publish before the summer, but I'd seen the lengths he would go to let us get off onto another topic. The lengths he'd go to spend hours Googling himself rather than having his own say in the pages of his autobiography. I wrote through, through the night, writing hard through the night, to assemble what we had. Despite promising his publishers and me to produce pages, he produced nothing in all the months I was there, not a single written sentence. But in the end, I assembled a rough draft of 70,000 words from the interviews. It wasn't by any means great, but I had a voice, a reasonable, even-tempered, slightly amused, but moral voice, which was as, as invented as anything I'd ever produced in fiction, especially the reasonable part. Yet it hadn't felt like creating a character in a novel, as much as writing a voiceover for a real person who isn't quite real. Ghosting, in some ways, borrows techniques from creative prose fiction. You give the reader the chance to see someone, to catch them, but the issue of control never became real to Julian. He should have felt haunted by what he was supplying, but he never did. He operated in this, as in everything, within a broad illusion of control. Only once, with snow outside, did he turn to me and show just a glint of full understanding. People think you're helping me write my book, he said. But actually, I'm helping you write your novel. It all went on for months. Julian became hot under the collar about the idea of the draft being shown to the editors. We were heading back to London one night, and it was decided Harry Stopes would deliver the draft to Canongate the next day. The American editor, Dan Franklin of Knopf, had flown over for the purpose. You have to remember this was all very close to the intended date of publication. They shouldn't be allowed to read it at all, Julian suddenly said. They're the editors, I said. They have to read it. No, they will only prejudice it. Julian, that's their prerogative. This is not an editorial event, he said to the editor on the phone. As a favour, we'll let you read the manuscript in its present form. He then proceeded to tell him that Harry would invigilate during the reading and that he would destroy the copies when the reading was over. I told Julian this was a terrible idea and that they would hate it. I appealed to Sarah Harrison, saying this was the sort of high-handed stuff that alienated people and turned them into enemies. She said nothing. The publisher, Julie, texted me with his view. Is he suggesting that we all read in the same room? Madness. Nick will ensure the manuscripts are shredded. As we were getting set to leave Ellingham, Julian came up to me beside the aga and hugged me. Thanks, he said. We were still talking about possible titles. Earlier on, I had come up with disclosure, but he didn't like one-word titles. He preferred ban this book. I told him it was too like Abby Hoffman's steal this book. He also liked, bizarrely, wet cement. <laughs> Don't ask I countered with my life and secrets. 
And Harry felt it should be called Assange by Assange before admitting this sounded slightly like a perfume. (laughs) (laughs) Julian had promised to read the draft over the weekend and the publishers were coming on Monday morning. I drove back overnight with Harry and we made to get ready. We tried to get everything organised. Jamie and Nick from Canongate arrived early the next day. Julian and Sarah turned up an hour late. There was tension in the room. I recognised it as the tension Julian exuded when he felt cornered. I'm amazed at what's been achieved, said Jamie Bing, the publisher. It's really a good draft, and what do you think? Julian fixed him with a fuck you stare. I've read about a third of it, and it's clear to me it needs a lot of work and won't be ready for June. You haven't read it, said Jamie. We all agreed to read it over the weekend. You had three whole days to read it. It takes eight hours. I had some dangerous things happening around the world, said Julian. Matters of life and death, you know. Uh, I had to take care of them. That's fine, I said. But we can't have a discussion here about a book you haven't read. Well, I've read enough of it to know that it needs a lot of work and this June date is impossible. I guess I'd say he had read the first three pages. He never wanted June as a publication date, and the whole project, in fact, gave him the willies. Bing suddenly became furious. I'm disappointed. I'm dismayed. We all travelled up here to discuss it, all having read it over the weekend, and you haven't even bothered to read it. The following Monday was high noon at the breakfast table. Julian was back to his old self, castigating the needs of his publishers, but singing at a higher pitch suddenly, saying the art of autobiography was hateful. Men who reveal their private lives in books are weak, he said. People who write about their family are prostitutes. And so it went on for hour after excellent hour. I really like the writing and everything, he said, but I can see, I can see something that you can't see, which is that my opponents will use this material to undermine me. They will dive on this stuff to say that I'm weak. No, they won't. I said, you can't write an autobiography that merely attempts to second-guess your opponents, Julian. I felt sorry for him at that point, and I continued to feel sorry for him from here on in. He was in a horrible predicament. He had signed up to a project that his basic psychology would not permit. I would never say my stepfather was an alcoholic, but you did say it, Julian. All the material in these chapters is suggested by what you actually said. You said it to me in dozens of interviews over many late nights. I have them all on tape. I was tired. But you weren't tired when you allowed them to be transcribed. You weren't tired when you sought an agent to make the deal and sign the contracts. You spoke personally throughout and never once suggested you didn't want this material to be used. Never once. I was tired, and I was busy. Julian, you signed on to write an autobiography, and you chose a writer to help you do it. Simples. You might consider what you're doing now by saying you didn't want the material you gave to be used in a narrative. But Andy, private writing is cheap. So be it. Don't publish it. All these books where men spill their guts, he said, and write about their intimate lives... That's the story you told, Julian. You spoke these words freely into a tape recorder. 
You spoke about Brett's drink problem. You spoke endlessly about the cult leader that followed you and your mother. But I don't want it in the book. Okay, then it should be removed. He's the sort of person who's always swimming towards the life raft. I threw him a line. What do you want from this book? Facts, some feelings, but it should be a manifesto. It can have some reflections from childhood and whatever, but the book should be a manifesto of my ideas. It should be like moral essays with a plot. (laughs) Okay, I said, but you have to write that. A manifesto comes from argument and belief. It can't be second-guessed or ghost-written, not the first time round. I agree. I'm going to sit down and do that. I want to get my ideas about justice and power into the book. It's like those writings political leaders used to do in prison. That's fine. It's your book. You have to tell the publishers very clearly that what you're writing is not an autobiography. This will sell even better, he said. Okay, make it clear to them. If you don't, you'll risk humiliating these people. The book I'm describing, he said, is the book I've always wanted to write, always said I'd write. That's not true, Julian. It wasn't the book you were writing when you stayed up with me all night telling me your stepfather was an alcoholic. Jamie, the publisher, was dismayed. We've sold this book to 40 publishers around the world on the basis that it's an autobiography, he said. And if this motherfucker wants now to denounce that kind of book, we'll cancel the contract. I have such a strong feeling for what they've done as an organisation. We all have. But if he does this, then he will hurt Canongate and he'll hurt others. Julian came over to lunch at my place. Julian, they need to stop interfering with the soup while it's being cooked. Who's actually read it? Me. Jamie Bing, Nick the editor, Dan from Knopf and Sonny Meta. Julian, I thought it was just the two editors. Me. No, Jamie was always going to read it, and then they must have given it to Sonny. Julian looked at Harry. I thought you were invigilating. You were supposed to take the manuscript away from them. At the end of the day, Harry said, I'm employed by Canongate. I couldn't refuse when they wanted to keep it. Julian, I gave you strict instructions not to let them boss you around. You should have taken it and walked out. Harry, I couldn't do that. I'm sorry. Anyway, this is a red herring. The issue is not about who's read the draft. It's about what kind of book they expect and what you want to write. Me. You can't expect him to go against them. This is ludicrous. Julian, I'm unspeakably angry. I I didn't know your loyalty was to them, he said to Harry. A a publisher's spy in the drafting process. (laughs) Harry, do you mean me? Julian, yes. At which point Julian went into the garden, slamming the door behind him. What a prat, Harry said. It all started to fall apart from there. Julian was lying to his agent and fighting with his lawyer over money. He wouldn't allow anyone to like the draft because he said it only encouraged the publishers. But he wasn't addressing his own problems or any of his own failures. He was in a state of panic at all times that things might get out. I'm sure this is what happens in so many of his scrapes. He runs on a kind of high-octane belief 
in his own rectitude and wisdom, only to find later that other people had their own views of what is sound journalism, of what is agreeable sex. It always completely baffles him that he might be complicit in his own mess. It may turn out that Julian is not, in fact, Daniel Ellsberg or John Wilkes, but Charles Foster Kane, abusive sometimes and monstrous in his pursuit of the truth that interests him, motivated all the while not by high principles, but by a deep, sentimental wound. It needs to be more like Ayn Rand, he said to me. This was new. I don't know if I can help you with that, I said. He was talking to Sarah and me about his forthcoming trip to the Hay Festival. You've been there, right? He said. It seemed mad to me that he was considering going to a book festival to talk about a book that wasn't done, wasn't published, and would never be published. I'll read one of those good writing parts of yours, he said, and then I'll read a new political thing. The latter will get the headlines, and the first will surprise people. I was astonished. The Daily Telegraph was sending a helicopter, and he wanted me to come into this thing. I hate helicopters, I said. I'm not coming to talk to Hay to talk about a book that isn't written, Julian. Even less to talk about a book I was supposed to be helping you write in secret. <laughs> All that afternoon, as I laid out a second draft plan for the book, Julian searched all the laptops and zip drives in the room, about eight of them, for his marked-up version. There was something pathetic about the search. It was clear he'd never marked up any version. You're going to have to do it again, I said. I've never been with anybody in my life who made me feel so like an adult. (laughs) And I say that as the father of a 10-year-old child. He came to my flat in London a few days later and he looked absolutely desperate. He hadn't found the mark to manuscripts and hadn't done any of the things we agreed He hadn't looked at it. We'd lost another four days. I handed him a draft of the personal vision stuff that I said to him would be ready, and he said he would read it that evening. No, you won't, I said. This book isn't going to happen, is it, Julian? He looked at me with a degree of honesty, I felt, for the first time. You haven't put pen to paper once in all these months, have you? I know, he said. There's over $2 million, Julian, and over 40 publishers, real people. Just stop the train now. But he wouldn't. Foreign publishers were getting cold feet. For some reason, Julian was fixated on my coming in this helicopter trip to the Hay Festival. With Julian, in every case, spectacle overrides tactics. And he couldn't see that me stepping out of a helicopter at Hay with him was a really terrible idea. (laughs) Sarah called to say she wanted to meet me and give me a hard drive. It was full of secrets and she had to hand it to me personally. I made coffee. He's like threatened me, threatened to fire me a few times, she said, and always for crazy reasons. One of the times was literally because I hugged another member of staff. Hugged him like a friend hug. Julian was like, that's so disrespectful to me, and went off on one. He said I'd said the guy smelled nice, and that was humiliating. 
And once he was like, you're the new Dom Scheitberg, and you could do some damage if you left. You won't tell the others what my role is, said Sarah. So one time he's like, you're my number two, but he won't say to the others. So if I try to speak to Kristen, for example, Kristen Hurfson, he's like, who do you think you are? Because I've got no, like, official authority. Only Julian has that. We turned to talking about the book. She said he'd never really intended to do it and was being straight, wasn't being straight with Jamie, the publisher, or with me about it. In fairness, she said, he'd never wanted to do it. He goes, goes on the phone to Jamie to say stuff and then doesn't say it. That's a disaster, I said, because Jamie, in good faith, has been selling this book all over the world, and Julian has obstructed it. <coughs> I know, she said. He doesn't want people to see how his mind works. Julian's pursuit of governments and corporations is a ghostly reverse of his own fears for himself. That was always the big secret with him, as I judged it. He wanted to cover up everything about himself except his fame. The breakdown of the deal and the cancelling of the contract was protracted with many recriminations between Julian and his publishers. I stood back for the main part and let them get on with it. Julian had let them down and they felt the only way to get some money back was to publish the draft, which they did. With every sense of their contractual obligations to him, no sense of his to them, Julian railed at enormous length against them, invented his spleen once again at the idea of friends who could dare to question him or his account. An invitation arrived for his 40th birthday. Come and celebrate with the most dangerous man in the world, it said. In London, there had been a touch of the old radical chicory about the party. A few people, a film director, a therapist, a writer, left messages on my voicemail asking if I was going to the big party. When it came to Sunday the 10th, I brought a friend full of curiosity. We arrived in the kind of tent that is popular at your average big fat gypsy wedding. Julian's dad was there and I spoke to him, not gleaning anything or trying to, just capturing the sense of this rather proud and gentle man. The party was curiously unfestive somehow, like one of those family occasions where nobody has really thought about the music or the fact that the kids would want different things from the adults. There was a lame auction of stuff Julian had in prison. His supporters, not least Jemima Khan and his other sureties, were left high and dry by this point, with no strong direction coming from Julian about whether they were being asked to support a freedom fighter or a man who'd been accused of double rape. I was getting a lot of calls to speak about it, but I didn't answer them. I'd failed not only to get the fascinating book I imagined, but to keep my involvement helpfully dark. I froze. It wasn't just the usual reluctance to write too much. It was a sense of loyalty to the original idea, plus a kind of loyalty to Julian's vulnerability that kept me there. I just couldn't stand, though, the scale of the errors he was making by then and didn't want to describe it. Not then. I knew it would take years, and it has. I turned my phone off. My play, The Missing, opened in Glasgow that night. After the curtain, Jamie Bing met me in the theatre bar. He had a copy of the book and said he wanted me to have the first copy. Holding it, I realised I felt nothing. 
It didn't feel it was in any sense by me, and the ghost's prerogative was all I had, to live a half-life in a house that wasn't mine. We should seek maximum publicity and maximum debunking, Julian said the next day, and I think both things can be done at the same time. How? I said. By making as much publicity as possible, the book will sell, he said. This is good. And by showing that the publishers jumped early when we were working on a first draft, we can question the book's authority. We will choose five inaccuracies in the book and thereby invalidate the integrity of the book. We will say, you oppose the book. Hold on, I said. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not willing to be a pawn in this. The book was at an early stage and you did not make changes, Julian. This is a matter between you and them. During the evening... Julian, through his Twitter account, sent a bizarre message about truth being stranger than fiction, linking his followers to the Amazon page selling the book. He hadn't wanted the book not to sell. Vanity operates in odd ways. But the effect of his campaign was to hurt sales, and yet he couldn't stop, printing transcripts of private phone calls between him and the publisher and publishing emails that appeared to show Canongate's duplicity on the question of publishing the book unauthorised. I wanted to reach out and warn him that they certainly had transcripts of our interviews, sittings in which he uttered, late at night, many a casual libel, I'm afraid. There was little security consciousness at work in those interviews, and I calmed them down, all of them, in the preparation of the manuscript, and removed things that were simply said by him in the heat of the moment, or things that were too much or too jocular, or just banter, but Canongate could have released them to the press at any time, rubbishing his notion that he did not want a memoir and devastating him with his own slack words. I still have those tapes, and they can be shocking. Canongate decided to move, move on, and in the end, they did not retaliate or wound him. Nobody, despite what he will say now, wanted to do that, or tried to do that then. Like me, they imagined he was under pressure, we all could see he was, and hoped that through a combination of tolerance and care in the community, our community, he would eventually stop all this and return to the work that had made him so valuable and interesting in the first place. Why don't you go after some baddies, I said to Julian, and stop fighting with the people on your side? Those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, especially in the United Kingdom under Thatcher and Blair, those of us who'd lived through the Troubles and the Falklands War, the miners' strike, the deregulation of the city and Iraq, believed it might be a godsend when the power of secret deals and covert operations could finally be exposed. When WikiLeaks began this process, it felt to so many of us to be the greatest potential contribution to democracy since the end of the Cold War. A new kind of openness suddenly looked possible. Technology might allow for people to watch their watchers at last and to inspect the secrets being kept, supposedly in our name, and expose fraud and exploitation wherever it was encountered in the new media age. It wasn't a subtle plan, but it smacked of the kind of idealism that many of us had felt for a while was lacking in British life, where big moral programmes on the left had become thin, it seemed, on the ground. Assange looked like a counter-warrior, 
and a man not made for the deathly compromises of party politics. And he seemed deeply connected to the web's power of surveillance and counter-surveillance. What happened, though, over the period from then until now, is that big government opposition to WikiLeaks' work, which is ongoing, became confused, not least in the mind of Julian Assange, with personal matters relating to the private life of the man himself. It has been a fatal conflation, and he caused it. There's a distinct lack of clarity in Julian's approach, a lack that is, I'm afraid, only reinforced by the people working with him. Only today, as I write this, he wrote me an email hearing that I was giving this lecture, warning me off it, telling me it was illegal for me to speak out with what he called appropriate consultation with him. He speaks of this, his precarious situation and of the FBI investigation into his activities. I have been detained, he wrote, without charge for a thousand days. And there it is, the old conflation, implying that his detention is to do with his work against secret keepers in America. It is not. He was detained at Ellingham Hall whilst appealing against an extradition order to Sweden to answer questions relating to two rape allegations. A man who conflates such truths loses his immoral authority right there. I tried to spell this out to him whilst writing the book, and he pretended to understand, but then he wouldn't listen, sometimes suggesting I must be naive not to consider the rape allegations to have been a honey trap set by dark foreign forces or that the Swedes were merely keen to extradite him to America. Because he has no ability to see through other people's eyes, he can't see how this conflation seems dishonest, even to his supporters. It was the trap he built for himself when he refused to go to Sweden and instead went into the embassy of a nation not famous for its respect towards press freedoms or any kind of freedom of speech. He will always have no answer to these points but there is no answer. He made a massive tactical error in not going to Sweden to clear his name. That's my opinion. Up to the present moment, I did nothing to break with him or unsettle him even. I watched the breakdown of a dozen good relationships, including with people who had put their own reputations and finances on the line for him. I resisted him firmly, though, when he overstepped the mark by telling me, for instance that all the interviews we did together should be destroyed. But I tried a different tack from the others, making myself available to him in the belief that he might eventually get back to the brilliant work. That is why I took so long to say what I'm saying now. I knew the truth would hurt him because the truth, after all, in the end, was not his friend. Too many of us, including several of those who stood bail for him, hung back and continued to flatter him with their tolerance. When Jemima Khan spoke up and publicly broke with him, he didn't pause to ask why a loyal supporter could become so aggrieved. When I mentioned it, he simply made a horribly sexist remark about her. He entered the Ecuadorian embassy in June. I just, that year, I just gestured to the nine months after the autobiography debacle had come to its crashing end. When I went to see him there, he was cornered in a room at the back of the embassy, surrounded by hampers from Harrods across the way, well-wishers presents to the incarcerated. And sitting at a grubby desk, covered in snacks and papers, we got back to some of our old banter. 
a running machine stood along one wall. He told me about a failed siege by the police and about some projects they were getting off the ground. But quickly, as always, he turned to demolishing a supporter. He said someone in the embassy was mad and stopped the corridor. He said that the person thought she was fat and went on a ludicrous diet because she didn't like how she appeared in the photographs taken by the Daily Mail. During the making of the DreamWorks movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch, I was contacted by the actor and spent a bit of time with him, advising him. Julian called me one day when I was in a supermarket in Camberwell. I've got an idea, he said. They want you as a consultant on this film. Why don't you say yes to that and split the fee with me? <laughs> because I'm not interested in that, I said. And if you want to oppose the film, which you've said you do, why would you also want to make a profit from it? Why not, he said. More recently, the paranoia could make him seem almost off his head to me. He asked me to come in one day and see him. As soon as I entered the room, a new, bigger room, but standard issue, messy, depressing, smelling of laborious, boring hours, I could see he was disturbed about something. I've received some intelligence that you're preparing a book, he said, that you have tapes, and you're going to talk about visiting me in the middle of the night. I told him I'd made no such plans to write a book and had, as he knew, turned down massive offers to do so. I reminded him I was a writer and always had been, a writer the day I met him. That's why I met him, that it was normal for people to speculate about it and also that I believed in freedom of speech. Just tell me first if you're going to, he said. Tell me. I said I would. And I said many conciliatory things without really believing them anymore. He did what he was now famous for doing, building the creature he most feared would come to get him. And I left that night in the full knowledge that my time with Julian over snowy nights and long, crazy afternoons of denial had exiled me from the ghosting aesthetic for life and brought me back to first position as a writer. He was a character. It didn't matter to me anymore whether he continued to work the way he had started or stayed true to what he'd said. He was a figure now of Dostoevsky, a figure out of James Hogg or John Banville, and a figure, most vitally, out of me. I was now making him into a figment of my imagination, and that was perhaps all he could ever really be for me now. Sitting in that prison, Julian was by then a cipher, a person whose significance could scarcely be grasped by himself, though he's forced to live with that. There were two last visits. During the first, I was led by a new young assistant, Ethan, who was keen to agree with everything being said. Our conversation was mainly about Edward Snowden. There are few subjects in which Julian would be reluctant to take what you might call a paternalistic position. But over Snowden, whom he'd never met but has chatted with a lot and feels largely responsible for, he expressed a kind of irritable admiration. How good is he? I asked. He's number nine, he said. In the world? Among computer hackers? And where are you? I'm number three. He went on to say he wondered whether Snowden was calm enough, intelligent enough, and said that he should have come to them earlier for advice, much earlier. He was keen that others, I took him to mean The Guardian and Glenn Greenwald, don't claim too much credit for the flow of secrets. But it was odd how he spoke about Snowden, 
that day, almost jealously, as if the younger man didn't quite understand what he was about, needing much more from Julian than he knew how to ask for. I recognised the old glint of fear in another's, another's independence. He didn't like our independence, though it attracted him to us in the first place. He had the familiar anxiety about non-influence. Snowden should have been with us from the beginning, he said. He's flailing. But they were now making up for lost time. As we spoke, Sarah Harrison was in Moscow Airport, where Snowden was being held without a passport. I sent Sarah over, said Julian, in his favourite mode. All he needed at that point was a white cat to stroke. Snowden was everywhere in the news the night I decided to drop in on Julian after I'd been out in Knightsbridge. The embassy was quiet. I brought a couple of bottles of beer up from the street and we sat in the dark room. It was a Friday night and Julian had never seemed more alone. We laughed a lot that night and then he went very deeply into himself. He drank his beer and then lifted mine and drank that too. We've got some really historic things going on, he said. Then he opened his laptop and the blue screen lighted his face and he hardly noticed me leaving. Thank you. Andy, thank you so much for a, a really, really, really fascinating talk. And I mean, I, I'm sure all of you will have all sorts of reflections on this, but certainly for me, the most sort of, sort of deep aspect to it is simply the way in which it opens up the relationship between the human and history, really. I mean, we, we, we sit on the outside of things and we look at them, and it takes somebody who understands human beings and understands them with a novelist's understanding to make us see the kind of drop shadow behind what is going on in the newspapers. It also made me think of Mary Beard last week talking about men and about the way in which most of the world is run by these people and how scary and strange it is. Um, I, I think it was an extraordinary thing and thank you very, very much for... Oh, well, the other thing actually I remembered was, was Schopenhauer. Actually, I remembered... Um, you know, Bertrand Russell saying Schopenhauer had spent the rest of his life after writing The World as Will and Representation seeking out evidences of his fame. And I thought how easy it would have been for him if he'd had Google. And how many men um, in history would have been sitting at that screen Googling themselves. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.